Hello, 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 hello. Welcome to Calling All Useful Idiots, the call-in after party. Um, make sure, if you haven't, that you subscribe to us on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots. Also, make sure that you uh, subscribe to us on Substack. You get great extended interviews. You get a weekly feature that's amazing, and it's called Thursday Throwdown, where we react to media clips that come out during the week. Um, and yeah, you get to see extended interviews. It's a great time. And that is at usefulidiots.subtech.com. Also make sure that you rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. And, uh, we're going to get started shortly. Um, also another great thing you can do right now is share this room on Twitter. So we get the, we get people in the room. Um, whoops, sorry. Okay. And and we already got some callers, so let us start the call-in. Hi, Tim. How's it going? Hello. Can you hear me? Yep, we can hear you loud and clear. Cool. Uh, happy birthday to Aaron. Um, so I'm actually calling from France. I used to live in America for about 10 years, but I left. And I have a question for Aaron uh, specifically. Um I've been doing a bit of a deep dive into Libya and Syria recently, and I'm wondering, given his uh, output on both of these fiascos, if there are any specific resources or books that he would recommend to really get a good understanding of the dynamics behind what happened in Syria and in and in uh, Libya in, in 2011, around that period. Um, I love Max Blumenthal's book, The Management of Savagery, which goes into both. Um, I've heard of it. I haven't read it. Oh, oh that's a really good book because it because it, it, it tackles both those uh, conflicts. So that's okay. very good. Uh, Vijay Prashad has a book about Libya called uh, something about spring and winter in the title. Um, let me look it up right now. Uh, and yeah, in terms of books on the Syria Dirty War, I don't think there's been a great one written yet so many of the ones that come out are just all state department propaganda they're just garbage so, so when, when it comes to syria unlike for example with chomsky with vietnam you had a lot of serious um scholarship in the in the 70s and 80s including his own work nothing like that has really come out yet for syria from a you know even more of an academic perspective just looking very very objectively at things yeah um the book I was talking about by Vijay Prashad is called uh, Arab Spring, Libyan Winter. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, um, in terms of Syria, I don't think we, yeah, I mean, there's been some great articles. Like, for example, an article that really opened up my eyes, it, way, way too late, by the way, way too late, but it is what it is. Um, Robert F. Worth is a journalist with the New York Times, and he wrote an article in 2017 for New York Times Magazine called Aleppo After the Fall. And uh, you read it closely and you see he's basically um, refuting all the propaganda that was printed in, in his own newspaper. And, uh, and, you know, and again, that speaks to my own Western biases that it took reading about it in the New York Times to really make me realize how much deception had been put into the Syrian war. Like that's when I first really, really got it. So I, I recommend that article. 
by Robert F. Worth. I'll call it Aleppo After the Fall, the New York Times magazine from That's 2017, I think. At that time, I was reading almost exclusively the New York Times, and I realized that, I mean, I recall that anecdote about Chomsky going to his dentist, and the, the reason his teeth were grinding was because he was reading the New York Times. So I, <laughs> I really oh, wow. feel like I need to get uh, access to um, a, you know, a, a better historical grasp on what went wrong rather than the filtered liberal version from the NYT. So anyway, I won't keep you. I'll let the next caller get on. I really appreciate that. Aaron. Thanks a lot. All righty. Jose. Hey, Jose. <clears throat> Howdy. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. All right. So two of my favorite people. Um, I wish I could get on these Collins more, but I'm, I'm more busy than I ever was um, these past few months. But uh, I just want to get right into it. You know, today is the 20th anniversary of the Iraq war. And one of the things our favorite Congress people are doing, AOC and Espaillat, is they're holding a military recruitment drive in a middle school slash, uh, slash high school uh, here in the Bronx. Um, so I just thought I'd inform you guys of that. But more generally speaking, you know, we're hearing a lot of talks that the Chinese are brokering a ceasefire or some kind of deal um, between Ukraine and Russia. And we've, you know, as Aaron had reported, that the United States has already preemptively said it's not legitimate. No matter what happens, right. we're rejecting it. Um, if there is a ceasefire, well, first of all, is the likelihood of a ceasefire real, considering that you have this panic um, from the West and from the United States? And if that is the case, do you think they will actually go up to some kind of escalation where it might be a direct confrontation? Because I know Seymour Hirsch said that there is a plan B for Ukraine, which is direct confrontation. So I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on, on what you thought. Um, well, um, there was a comment yesterday from the Polish ambassador uh, who said that if Ukraine can't win its own independence, we're going to have to go in and fight for them. So there is like speculation that Poland that there are people like leaders in Poland who actually want to want to send their troops in, you know, after Ukraine's troops run out. Um, yeah, he, he said either Ukraine will defend its independence today, or we will be forced to enter into this conflict. That's the Polish ambassador to France saying that. So, um, you know, uh, you can't rule that out. You can't rule that out. I, I, um, it's, I can't make predictions like that because who knows. But I certainly think uh, there are people in NATO states like Poland and people inside the U.S. government who are prepared for a direct confrontation. I just don't know how, how influential they are inside the U.S. and what that would look like. But but you never know. Like you can't rule any, anything out with these people. They're driven by something that's beyond reason. They they have a um, a sort of it's an emotional attachment to confronting Russia and you know that will lead to dangerous things yeah okay that seems fair yeah no thanks that's 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 pretty much all I had and just wanted to thank you I get the uh, am lives uh, in uh, uh, after the fact because I can never tune in when you do them but uh, 
I do appreciate them. And that's when I heard about the uh, New York Times interview of the guy <laughs> and the other guy saying, hmm, yes, right. So freelance saboteurs. That was funny. So, that was it was very very funny. I I love that clip. It's, <laughs> uh, yeah, so Cyhurst yeah. Cyhurst read it out at a recent speech he gave because it was so, yeah. So, so that funny. was funny too. His 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 recitation at the National Press Club. Yeah, yeah, that was good. Yeah. So anyway, okay. Well, thanks guys. That's Great all to hear from you, Jose. Thanks for calling. Yeah. All right. Bye bye. Okay, uh, William. Hey. Pop up window. When you're done, here to mute. I haven't been there for, I haven't been here for a while. I've been uh, busy. But anyway, uh, I just got through reading Gone with the Wind, this huh. Saturday, by Margaret Mitchell. An incredibly good book, but um, it, it was enlightening because it let me know that a lot of the attitudes that they had in 1865, we still got the same attitudes today. And um, anyway, that's not what I'm I'll call about. I called about Harriet Tubman. Now, you know, several years ago, they talked about uh, putting Harriet Tubman on a $20 bill. Right. I think it's about time to do that. Because, um, first of all, I mean, the, the, everybody knows about her... Um, work in the underground railroad and all that stuff. But a lot of people don't know that when, during the civil war, she was a spy for the civil war, for the, for the North. And, um, she is, she is the first female to lead us troops into battle. She's also, um, what was the other thing she did? Um, she also had narcolepsy, which made thing made everything she did that much more impressive. Yeah, I mean, and and the thing is, and so she would just fall asleep all of a yeah. sudden. Yeah. Hmm. So I've never actually read a book about her. I just downloaded a book from the National Library Service, so I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, be tackling that book as soon as I get off this call. But um, but uh, um. Oh, I, I know. I know. After the, after the war was over, she uh, applied for a, a pension. You know, so apparently she was doing all this, all the stuff that she did during the Civil War. She was not getting paid for it. She wasn't like a. I guess she wasn't an official soldier or whatever, and uh, or a member of the U.S. military. So they refused her a, a pension. Wow. And so and and she married a guy who was a. Um, Civil War veteran and once he died they gave her his pension and Uh, the reason why I say this would be this perfect perfect profound poetic justice her pension after she's after all these years of fighting to get a pension her pension was $20 a month so to put her face on a $20 bill uh, would be Perfect. Yeah. So that's been, that's all I that's all I got for you today. And I'm gonna read this book, and I'm I'm gonna come back because I'm, I'm I apologize for not having any like real specifics, and you know I I wish I could tell you like exactly what regiment she led into battle, and and like you know she's I know she uh, she um, 
got in the water in um, one of the harbors out there, and, they, and she found out because one of the harbors were mined, and she found out where all the mines were. And so when the ships came in, she guided them around all the mines and all that kind of stuff in the harbor. I can't remember what harbor it was or when it happened and all that. I just remember reading all this stuff about her. I've never actually read a book specifically about her. And like I said, I just downloaded one a few minutes ago, and I'm going to start working on that as soon as I get off this call. But anyway, that's that's all I got for you. But thank you for uh, let me. Oh, and I want to. I want to. Uh, I'm going to be writing my congressman and Joe Biden and Janet Yellen and all that, and put this before them. But I want to make sure I got a lot of you know specifics that I can, I can name about her. You know what I mean? To tell yeah. them that hey, it's time to do this. Yeah, and history is important, obviously, as we you know learn from just the coverage of the Iraq War. So thanks for this. Yeah. All right. Thank you, guys. Thanks, William. All right. Bye. Bye. Laura. Hello, Aaron. Hello, Katie. Happy ha- belated birthday to you, Aaron. I wasn't able to call in last week, but I did listen to the call in afterwards. Um, I I just I don't know if you remember me, but I called a, maybe a few months ago. I'm from Canada. One of the biggest issues politically affecting Canada right now is immigration coming in from the United States. Um, and, and what's been happening is that uh, both the, the political uh, machinations of the governor and the mayor of New York City have been busing people from New York City up, up until the rural border of Quebec, which is one of our provinces. And I guess I'm just wondering, what is the, like, um solution to this if if any and what is the ideology behind doing something like that when most progressives most people and even most conservatives don't believe in like a safe safe third third country kind of thing because the united states themselves wants remain in mexico policy right like what, what's the what's the rationale for 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 different policies for the united states and then trying to then push those policies onto Canada. And just personally, I believe in open borders, but but that that I'm just wondering about what the American belief is. You mean like what the American rationale for having double standards is? Well, now that you phrased it like that, um, hypocrisy is Americanism, but but I, I not mean way hypocrisy is politics everywhere but but i i guess i'm just wondering if if maybe americans don't know about this it's it's a big bit thing in canada because we have about a tenth of your population so having like i don't i know i don't mean to phrase it unkindly but but having busloads of immigrants coming in a very sudden way to, to us is is very overwhelming but um anyway i just wanted to say yeah what what is the what is maybe maybe americans don't yeah, probably not. I would. I think that most Americans don't know. And I also just think it speaks to the entitlement that we see, like that we go over on Monday morning, you know, the United States living by different rules that they, you know, they like to talk about the rules-based order, which is, of course, uh, not rules-based and disorder and uh, whatever benefits the United States elites. So what you're saying is, I think, pretty consistent. It's a great question. 
Okay. Um, and I don't want to take up too, too much of the call of this just because it's not necessarily related to your um, uh, video from before, but uh, do you think that there's any space of agreement between Canada, the United States, Mexico, and, and any other country that, that may be experiencing a large amount of ground over the over the border immigration or is it just a problem that that's going to remain forever because of, of you know terrible you know people misunderstanding about immigration and racism sadly i think the latter all right well i'll talk to my own people in my own country about how i view it and how i would like to fix it but i do appreciate you guys and i follow american news quite closely and i do love your show so happy birthday aaron and thank you thanks, thanks Laura. Laura. uh okay mike hi mike unmute yourself by hitting the mic icon all right uh-huh. I'm here, I think. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry I missed your show. I'm waiting for it to pop up so I can watch it. But um, I got this I got this article on my Facebook the other day. Um, Pro-Moscow voices tried to steer Ohio train disaster debate. Oh, I don't know if you guys right. talked about that on Yahoo News. <laughs> I just wanted to... I don't understand how people can, like, read an article like this. And, um, you know, it talks about pro-Kremlin, pro-accounts, pro-Russian accounts, but they don't have any evidence in this article at all for any of their assertions as they as they argue that these so-called Russian accounts are spreading disinformation. And it's the, the, peop, the guy that put it on Facebook you know, I, I point that out. People just, do people just automatically believe these sites because they're, uh, I don't know, authoritative or they're, you know, they're considered acceptable sites to believe, even though they have no, you know, they call some, some uh, company called Reset as their source, identified by Reset, a London-based nonprofit social that's study social media's impact on democracy and share with the Associated Press. Uh, it says, reports findings indicate Twitter is allowing Russia to use its platform like a bullhorn, but there's no evidence anywhere. And people put this on there as like, as fact, and, and it's supposed to be an article about misinformation as they throw all this stuff out there without any evidence. I mean, you guys see this happening all the time? Well, that article was so funny. So basically, like, people online are criticizing the response to the train disaster in East Palestine. And, of course, because the Russiagate playbook is to deflect any criticism of U.S. elites by, by chalking up any kind of dissent to the work of Russia, of course, they rolled that out for East Palestine, too. Right. And... And, and, the, the and what they do is, and what I, they do is, they find these fake disinformation groups, as Matt Taibbi's been exposing a lot recently in the Twitter files, to like provide some information which they can use as their source. So the Associated Press 
reports this and then and then like and then sources this to some you know benign sounding think tank and who is a think tank in this case they're called Reset and who funds them it's Pierre Omidyar who is a billionaire oligarch who's behind the Intercept and but also a bunch of neocon scam disinformation groups including the one that said that I'm the most prolific spreader of disinformation on Syria that was another <laughs> one like like he also funds the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. And they put out a report saying that I spread, and then that produced a report in The Guardian. So it's a feedback loop constantly where you get these scam groups to come up with fake Russiagate claims, uh, and then you get the media to report on them as if they're true. And so the yeah. article, let me just say so people listening know the article, as you referred to it, Mike, it's from the AP, and it says pro-Moscow voices tried to steer Ohio train disaster debate. And the tweet from AP Politics is pro-Moscow Twitter accounts tried to steer America's online conversation about last month's train derailment in Ohio. The accounts posted misleading claims and anti-U.S. propaganda designed to spread fear about the toxic spill and mock the U.S. response. And of course, we're just getting more information about how this fear is justified because there are things like carcinogenic carcinogen levels that we're just learning about, which are, which are very high. And this is something we saw a lot in 2016, when all um, like Black Lives Matter coverage or uh, Green Party coverage, all that stuff was was uh, alleged to be Russian meddling in the in, in the elections. Yeah, I mean, it says on here that uh, accounts of some of the claims are verifiably false, such as the suggestion that the news media had covered up the disaster, and that the news media did not cover that disaster. Right. It was. It had to be. I mean, I started hearing about it from independent news. I don't know if I heard it from you guys, but similar type um, online news organizations that are more independent. And then they it got pushed into the into the limelight. But regular, I mean, corporate news wasn't reporting on this train disaster at all for for at least a week. Right. Yeah, the Lever News, the Lever did a lot on this. Yeah, that's that- right. Yeah, he pushed it up. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks. I just wanted to bring that up because it was just—it's just so crazy how people just—they—it's like what do they call it um, when you have two t- opposing views in your head at the same time, and the people can read something like this and they just uh, believe it all, and and it's just as much disinformation as if what they're pointing out—if that's disinformation—but that's the thing. Nobody really knows and. But people, it's like it's more like religion. People trust certain things based on their belief of whether they're right or they're good or evil, and they'll just believe something that they read from a certain source rather than, you know, and like if like if if AP came out and said the Earth was flat, it's like you get all these people saying the Earth was flat yeah. <laughs> just just because well AP said it. So it's got to be true, right? You know, it's crazy. So thanks a lot, anybody. Anyway, thanks. Thanks, Mike. Uh-huh. Okay, Udita or Udita, tell me how to uh, pronounce it. Unmute yourself by hitting the mic icon. Oh, okay. Jonathan. Hello. How's it going? Uh, so far, so good. I just got off of my 48-hour stretch, 
and I'm packing up after the grocery store. But uh, I thought I'd have uh, Uditya in front of me, but I'm ready now. Um, anyway, I uh, enjoyed Monday morning as usual, and uh, I enjoyed the uh, interview with Christian Parenti. Uh, his FBI article was actually pretty fabulous. Uh, even better, if possible, than uh, the article you interviewed him on a couple of weeks ago, um, which also was very, very good. Although, I would like to say people really need to quit asking Christian Parenti about economics. He doesn't know. Like, John Stewart knows more about inflation than he does. Ow. But the FBI article was fabulous, and it just happens to coincide. Like, you remember when Aaron Good sent me down that rabbit hole? I've gotten through like five or six books on it, and uh, I like I think Parenti's FBI article is really on the right track. I would also point out in relation to what the last caller said that there's also a long history of these uh, sort of pseudo-independent astroturfed organizations that are used as a laundromat for the FBI and other deep state actors to uh, uh, to do this kind of activity. And, you know, they, they may have a little more sophisticated sounding names now, but, you know, back in the day, it was like, uh, the National Security Society and, uh, you know, the American Liberty League and people like that, that would kind of feed this sort of, uh, intelligence or whatever to, you know, the FBI itself. And, uh, you know, in turn, they would launder a lot of the, the sort of backdoor persecution that the FBI itself couldn't do for legal reasons uh, through those organizations and have them do things like pressure campaigns on employers and, and things of that nature. So it plays into, uh, you know, there's an intersectionality between uh, different areas that you guys are covering, which I think is kind of fascinating, actually. That's all I got. All right. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you. Okay. John, from Jonathan to Johnny. Hello. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. yeah. Okay, great. I'd just like to plug in a video series that I discovered maybe about six months ago, maybe a year ago, that I think it's really helpful in understanding what it is that we're dealing with how uh, corruption in the media and uh, in society, um, the the reason for all this uh, that we're dealing with. And that is a five-part series on YouTube called This is Neoliberalism. I don't think there's any better explanation of what we're dealing with than that five-part series. And what I would stress in that series is uh, uh, Friedrich Hayek's understanding and argument with uh, John Maynard Keynes on uh, on the uh, on, on promoting or advancing the idea of the market uh, being able to uh, control society or or gear or guide society in a more prosperous na- nature. But his thinking, part four and five, is I think is I would stress that you really really pay attention on the way he thinks about this. And I think that if people were to watch that, they would better understand what we're dealing with. The question for me is. How is it that we're going to overcome? Will it take a war to overcome this ideology that has taken our government and governments around the world? And that's really all I have to say. Okay, thanks for the recommendation. Thank you. All right, bye-bye.
Okay, uh, Amanda. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so I just wanted to add a couple of additional observations. The, the two of you do, do such a nice job of pointing out what's happening in the clips that you play. We, I appreciate that. Um, Thanks. From the Face the Nation one, um, he talked, the, the person they were interviewing, that um, I can't remember what the guy's name was because I don't really want to know who that person is. But um, there's so much projection going on. He said preemptive. What? Here's what you want to look for. Like, it, isn't that the same thing they did with Russiagate? Like, here's what you want to look for. Russia's going to be putting this out. So it's like, here, here's what you want to look for in all of these stories because this is what we want you to focus on. I mean, why doesn't the left do that more often? <laughs> I wish we would. Um, the other thing is this, tr the coordinator of strategic communication, I think that used to be PR, how, how coordinator of strategic communication is quite a title. Yeah. And one of the things that that person said was that, that Russia forced us to bring our drone down because they accidentally ran into it. It seems like they're trying to like play it off like nothing really happened, so we don't need to have everybody saying, "Hey, Russia shot us down. We need to go to war." Right? Would you say that, or you think it's just a? Uh... I mean, you got to calm people down. People are very crazy. Some of them about what if Russia actually shot down our drone? And I appreciate the fact that you pointed out, like, what is our drone doing over there? Right. It's not a balloon. Yeah. Well, it looks like I inspired a few more people to call in, and I'm glad. That's kind of part of what I was hoping to get done when I called in. But also, you guys are such a wonderful way to start my week. Thank you. Thanks, Amanda. Well, thanks. And, you know, there uh -huh. were people like Lindsey Graham uh, saying we had to respond to the drone being shot down. So I think, um, yeah, maybe the Biden administration was trying to calm some of those uh, or was trying to respond to some of those calls because, you know, uh, Tom Cotton too was saying like, we need to respond. Like they wanted to escalate. Um, but um, I guess thankfully some cooler heads prevailed. But again, why is that drone flying there in the first? Place? Right. And of course we shot down a weather balloon. So there's that. Okay. Thanks, Amanda. Uh, Charlie. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah. Hi, I wanted to ask about um, uh, Xi Jinping and Putin's meeting they're having right now. And specifically, I want to ask about what you guys think the potential consequences could be if some kind of a peace deal or peace negotiations of a serious matter actually begin. Because um, what I'm thinking is we're obviously, we've already explicitly labeled the potential of a peace deal as a threat. But I'm wondering if you think, like how committed are we to the war? Do you think that this peace deal could actually escalate and cause us to panic and and double down on on uh, saying no to peace and maybe even, you know, escalating further and more rapidly to prevent peace? Or do you think maybe we, because we're afraid of being overshadowed by China, 
as the peacemaker of the world, do you think maybe it could cause us to ramp up and, and propose our own peace plan? Um, I, I'm kind of just yeah. curious as to what great you think. So the, those are great questions. Yeah. I don't know, but I think you're asking the, the right questions because can the U.S. tolerate uh, a peace deal, especially one that it doesn't implement, its, you know, impose itself? Um, and, uh, and that's a great question because these people, they're not driven by rationality. They're just driven by wanting to control everything. And so if a peace agreement happens that's outside of their control, can they tolerate that? I don't know. I don't know. But I think that's a great question. Yeah, I guess uh, as a follow-up then, do you think um, there is any chance of Ukraine being willing to to sit with China and, and talk concessions over at all? Or do you think they'll, you know, put forth some, some ridiculous ultimatum and kind of reject the peace talks all the I don't know. Um, I mean, Zelensky, I think, so far has been uh he's been he's been all, he's been kind of all over the place like initially in the first weeks of the war he spoke to Russia and they reached a peace deal the US blocked it and then since then he's taken a really hard like hard line stance of no negotiations no nothing so he's he's hard to read i don't know it really depends on who has his ear and uh what's going on internally but which i don't have a really good read on so I don't know, but great question. Yeah, and fair answer. It's it's really hard to read these things. Well, uh, thanks for taking my call. I'll uh, I'll let the next Thank person. Thank you. Jump. Thanks, Charlie. Okay, Brady. Hello. I apologize for being at the basketball court yesterday. Well, I was in line. That was embarrassing. But I have some good news. I came up with another cool idea uh, called Force the Toke where we just encourage the cannabis legalization fully, just treat it like the plant that it is all the way across the entire world, the globe, so that if we all die in a nuclear holocaust, at least we can go out enjoying some nice herbs at the same time, you know, just like enjoy that before everybody dies, I think would be something good. And also it's the one thing that's kind of like preventing me from really just like embracing China's policies is like the fact that I can't travel to China and smoke a blunt at the same time really bothers me. You know, um, it's the only thing that's like preventing me from going over there. Um, honestly. <laughs> and so I, I really, on a serious level, like it could solve world hunger. It could lower medical costs globally uh, for so many reasons. It could, it could solve, I think more problems than we're even aware of yet as, uh, as well as, you know, lowering alcohol consumption um, and protecting our brains as well. CBD will actually protect your brain cells from the damage that alcohol can cause as well as, as we know, uh, traumatic brain injury. Um, football players could be smoking CBD on the benches and literally protecting their brains while they're out there doing their thing, as well as any athlete or any, anyone who's doing anything like that. Like if you're rock climbing, something like that, you know, it's just something that needs to be available to humans. It's, that's just okay. it. Force the toke. Force the toke. Like nope. Force the toke. Yeah. Okay. Uh, pseudonym. Pseudonym, 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 pseudonymous, one thousand. Tongue twister. Okay, go ahead. Pseudonymous. 
Pseudonymous. Pseudonymous. Pseudonymous 1000. It's meant to sound yeah. like a vacuum cleaner, like a early uh, Jeff, early Jeff Koons Hoover's um, from the, the 80s. They were like art market allegories of just the art market voraciously sucking everything up that was that was being presented at the time. Um, so that was kind of the inspiration for it. But um, anyway, I wanted to take issue with um, something Aaron said in the, the episode this morning. And um, I, I listened to you guys enough to know that it's sort of um, a characteristic rhetorical move on, on Aaron's part when you're discussing conspiracy theories to uh, sort of deflect it by saying, no, the other side is, is presenting conspiracy theories. And my problem with this is that it, it, it suggests that conspiracy theories are inherently false. And right. that's just not the case because, I mean, it's, it's accepted historical fact that like Julius Caesar and Abraham Lincoln, and if, if you gave me time, I could list many others, were, were murdered by, you know, cons- criminal conspiracies. Um, and um, Russiagate too, I mean, it was, it was a, not just a conspiracy theory, but it was like a conspiracy in the form of a conspiracy theory that also took the form of like a politically hampering prolonged investigation. Um, but there was a, there was an actual conspiracy, I think. And um, um, conspiracies certainly happen. I mean, it just means, you know, powerful people coordinating in secret. I mean, they don't even have to be that powerful, but they have to, you know, try to act in a way that, that exerts power. Um, but that, that's something that, you know, is fully within the realm of human possibility. And we, it's documented and known to have happened many, um, many times in the past. So I just wouldn't use the, and if you look at the, I just looked at the engram on Google for conspiracy theory. It, it first blips around the beginning of World War II, but then the term really takes off. Engram is this wonderful tool where you can track the historical usage rate of terms in books historically. Um, and the term really takes off after uh, the Kennedy assassination. And um, there's, uh, it's widely believed, I know, I know that um, people think that the term was, was actively promoted by the CIA in order to prevent um, more effective critical scrutiny of their own involvement in that assassination. So um, I, I, just, I just would try to push back against your uh, tendency, Aaron, to, um, to sort of accept this language without, without critiquing it. All right, touche. Fair enough. Yeah. I take your point. Fair enough. I, no, sorry, I cut you off. Aaron, keep going. Because you're responding to this. Oh, Aaron, did I cut you off? No, no, no. I, I was just saying fair enough. I, I thought he made a good point. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's like, I think that there are two things that are happening. One is that there's like a double standard and a hypocrisy so that the people who say, who, who call things that are just like conspiracy descriptions or descriptors, right? Because there are conspiracies. Um, that word is weaponized to cast doubt on things. But of course, as you pointed out, there are uh tons of conspiracies that just requires people, multiple people acting together. Um, and then there's the issue of, well, if you want to talk about conspiracy theories in the way that they mean that believing things that aren't, that there's no evidence for, of course, this, those people are believing Russiagate. So, yeah, I think both of those things are true. 
So both yeah, things I that mean, are. Um, yeah. If I could, if I could really quickly just make one one further point um, that's sort of related um, in connection with the the recent stories about um, East Palestine as as being promoted by Russian propaganda. Um, yeah. I mean, this is a kind of conspiratorial tendency of the CIA that actually has a long history to blame internal discontents within the United States on Russian propaganda. And it's it's really, if you look at the history, it's quite um, dis, dis, um, reputable or discrediting because um, for, for personal reasons I won't go into here, I've done a fair amount of research on the former CIA director, Richard Helms, who was um, the director of the clandestine service at the time of the JFK assassination. Um, and also a major liaison figure with the, the Gellin organization. Um, and um, his first New York Times appearance, which has actually been scrubbed from the New York Times uh, website, but which I found in 2019, it's been scrubbed since then. Um, it's, it's, I think, still available through ProQuest. Um, but um, it's him testifying to Congress about how the Soviets are pushing these he uses the term, um, you know, this was a period term at the time. He says, like, Negro horror stories about their treatment in the United States. And this is at a time of, you know, when the Klan was pretty powerful in resisting the civil rights movement. And um, when there were genuine horror stories that I think today almost everyone in the United States would acknowledge. I mean, not everyone, but most everyone. And the idea that this has continued today, I mean, it's not only with East Palestine, but people also talk about how um, Black Lives Matter will get will get um, amped up and promoted by Russian propaganda in order to um, magnify divisions within the United States. And it, this is something that just has, has a long history in terms of um, CIA and FBI narrative manipulation and um, of, of U.S. domestic politics. And, um, I'm glad to see that there was rejection and mockery and pushback about the East Palestine story. I mean, it was so absurd. Okay. Well, thanks. Me. Thanks a lot for the call. Yeah. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Okay. East Palestine, not Palestine, by the way. Uh, hello, Thomas. Hey guys, uh, good morning. Um, I uh, was only able to catch the last quarter of the show this morning, but you had me cracking up and I wanna say I appreciate you. Um, my call here is actually about something that uh, really was Aaron and Max covered. So if you guys don't wanna get into it, that's fine. Um, but I saw the coverage on the, uh, you know, the purported sailing yacht that was used uh, for the Nord Stream um, bombing, uh, according to you know, that, that report that came out in Der Spiegel. And it caught my attention because uh, I sail and uh, have experience chartering boats like that. And um, it, it really is not as implausible as it seemed Um it, I, I'm not saying that I think that it's true. I think there's good reasons to think that it's not true. Um, but um, 
I'm curious if there's been any sort of uh, technical follow-up that you guys are aware of uh, related to the kinds of dives uh, that are possible at that depth um, without uh, decompression chambers. Um, I've, I've done as much digging as I can, uh, both with uh, friends who are Navy divers or former Navy divers uh, and have trained Navy divers, uh, as well as um, forums and so forth that I hang out in related to sailing and diving, because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a recreational diver, but I'm certainly not qualified for the kinds of things that would be implied um, by the requirement to carry the right kinds of uh, air tanks and rebreathers um, and the, the amount of explosives necessary, even on the high end. Uh, but it, the, the whole thing is really not, as, at least as far as I can tell, impossible and probably not even entirely implausible. Uh, so I'm curious just if, if there's any sort of known technical follow-up. Uh... I know that Scott Ritter wrote an article for Consortium News last week about, you know, uh, his, uh, about his problems with the new yacht theory that was put out um, as part of the Nord Stream cover story. But I haven't read it. And I'm, so I don't know. Uh, beyond that, that's all I'm aware of. Oh, okay. Groovy. Thanks. Thank you. And we're going to wrap pretty soon. So let's take a couple more calls. Uh, Josh, go ahead. Unmute yourself by hitting the mic icon. Uh, oh, great. Sorry, just leaving class. Um, so first, uh, it's definitely an honor to meet you both. Um, I've been following Aaron for a while, so, um, great work on that OPW. And all that. Um, so first, I had a question about um, the protests going on, and uh, well, actually, I have a few, so you probably don't have time for all of them, so you can just answer what you find most interesting. Uh, so first, uh, question about protests in uh, France and Athens. So for France, basically, they have uh, protests, like you know, like all the time the French. Um, but it never really seems to like overthrow the government. It just seems that peacefully. I mean, obviously, um, it just seems to kind of like um, you know limit neoliberal austerity policies, like um, the whole retirement age thing. Um, when do you think that um, that might have like a twenty? And uh, I have a few more after if you have time for it. What did you say? When do we think that might what? I didn't hear what you said. Oh. Josh? So before it was really loud and now I can't hear you at all, but I can't hear what you said at the end. The, uh, Overthrow the coup government in Bolivia in 2020. All right, What's Josh. Your unfortunately, you Josh, your your sounds cutting in and out, so we got to move on. Um, sorry about that. Okay, the last caller will be Daniel. Go ahead. Hey guys, how you doing? Hi there. 
I, I, I'm sorry. I just caught the, the last part of the show. Did you guys talk about the, the Lucy Commissar uh, article yet? Have we talked about the Lucy Commissar article about Navalny yet? Is, yeah. No, we have not. Oh, okay. Yeah, I just wondered if you had any any you know comment on that. Uh, well, uh, so for those who don't know, Lucy Commissar wrote an article, uh, and then the Gray Zone published a uh, version of it, and she was taking apart the uh, Navalny documentary, and apparently she used for her sources she used AI to generate uh, some of her sourcing, and. Uh, the gray, you know, Max Blumenthal, the gray zone, didn't catch that when he published it, and when he did, uh, he amended her article uh, to remove all those sources that cite AI, and either he found sources to support the claims that initially used AI, or if he couldn't find sources for them, he removed those claims. Uh, but then she apparently wrote him and was not happy with him doing that, so he took down the whole article, and that's what happened. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, like, to me, that is like the dictionary definition of an awful media moment, you know? Okay. Yeah, uh, I think using uh, AI for sources is, uh, I've never heard of that before. And it was uh, ridiculous. And so it was corrected. And um, yeah, that's what happened. Look, it, it was uh, it was a huge error on her part, and it was an oversight on the part of the Gray Zone to miss that. Um, but ultimately, as far as I know, there were only a few claims that ultimately couldn't be supported, and those were removed, and the other claims could be supported, So, and their other sources were found for them, as, as far as I know. And uh, obviously, people who don't like the Gray Zone and the work we do... Uh, are going to try to use an incident like this to try to discredit everything else we do um, because they can't challenge what we do on, on everything else. So I understand everything else. Really? <laughs> yeah. Are you well, serious? Yeah, I am serious. Uh, wow. Daniel, ha- have you, Daniel, have you written an article challenging the gray zones reporting? Have I what? Have you written an article? Challenging have I what? The gray zones reporting? You didn't hear my question. Have I written an article? Why would I do that? Well, you seem to be I'm not very... a journalist. Okay, so so then if you're not a journalist and you seem very confident in disparaging the gray zone, uh, but you can't produce an article yeah. yourself on it, then you should then you sh- I don't think you should be so cocky about it. But look, yes, if you're asking me mm. was that stupid to cite AI on her part, yes, I think it was. Uh but uh, it was corrected and, and dealt with. And that happens sometimes. Uh, when, it wasn't when, when corrected. Was it wasn't dealt with. Absolutely not. Deleting okay, an so, article so, isn't, isn't a correction. Okay. Well, actually, like the, that's... the, okay, you're okay. Hold on a second. Okay. The mistake, stop talking. The corrections were made, but when the author of the article objected to those corrections, Max decided to take the whole thing down. So that's what happened. Um, that's what happened. It was really unfortunate. Uh, it was uh, it was a huge oversight on Max's part to miss the fact that there was AI being cited. Uh, but at the same time, um, it uh, to me, this was written by an outside writer. This was not even a gray zone writer, and and, it, and things like this happen sometimes. 
uh, and right. it, it was it was addressed. So if you want to like, you're free to interpret from this what you want to. Uh, but I just note that, for example, one of the biggest uh, sources of uh, of uh, uh, like to make this an issue was Bellingcat. And Bellingcat, by contrast with the gray zone, when I caught them setting a fabricated source and drawing unsupported conclusions from that fabricated source in an OPCW story, they added a bullshit correction at the top or a bullshit update at the top that didn't actually address the substantive problems with their article and they didn't retract it. And now they're trying to make an issue out of this, out of this article where actually Max did make corrections and ultimately retracted the article. So the people that's not a retraction. That's a deletion. Those are two different things. Okay. <laughs> a retraction would say yeah, yeah. this article was incredibly what? I was a retraction would say this article sourced completely fabricated links. The if you if you go to the correct now it doesn't exist so that people can't find the ridiculous mistake that was made. So go go to the Wayback Machine and you will see that there was actually initially a correction made. And it said that for the claims that were unsupported, those have been deleted. And, and those were wrong. I, like your language and around claims, it is, second, is very second, flowery. Second, I love second. that. And for and for claims Unsupported. that actually, well, yeah, yeah. If you couldn't find evidence for a claim, then it's no, they're, then no, it's they're not unsupported. They're okay. fabricated. They're fabricated. Okay, so yes, there, if if there were claims in there that were wrong, uh, and and you would even, you say I, I don't actually know what even claims you're referring to. So, but maybe they were fabricated. Fine. Um, uh, like, uh, like if they if they were if they were baseless, then yes, you can call them fabricated. Um, then those were removed. And if there are claims that were supported, evidence was added for them that, that didn't come from AI. That's what happened. And and then it got ultimately pulled because the author it didn't just come didn't from happen. AI. The AI generated completely fabricated links. Okay. So, and so yeah, in that case, again, those, yeah, yes. Yeah. So, so so in that case, the claims were wrong and they were corrected. So listen. Daniel, you've made your point. You did not like the article. You, you, uh, you're. Did you like it? I'm. Did you like it? Um, I first of all, it's pretty uh, shitty reporting, right? To to use AI is very shitty. Yes, of course it is. Uh, but the rest, uh, you know, I didn't. As far as I know, the rest of the article made claims that totally stood up. So I'm not going to actually disparage the article to the extent it used AI. Then that was ridiculous. Then why is the article not exist anymore? Daniel, he explained. As I, as I told you, hold on a second. As I told you, even after corrections were made, the author of the piece didn't like the fact that corrections were made. So Max decided he could no longer stand by it. So he took it down. That's what happened. And I'm not going to repeat myself further. Um, and, we're, and we'll wrap it there, <laughs> as promised. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Usefulidiots.substack.com. And uh, we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye, Rom.